you have in you something that's unique. Your voice, your time, your podcast. Right now, you're using the currency of your podcast to shine a light on slavery and injustice and hopefully nudge people being creative like one of the writers of the New Testament said to challenge each other to, to move forward into good works. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. I am, as always, your host and the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, Noel Jesse Haken. And, and a number of years ago, probably like 20 years ago, my church was part of helping to launch a church in Amsterdam. And I remember going to Amsterdam and what it is famously known for is obviously cannabis and the red light district. And I met a number of people, church planters and Christian workers that were working with people in the red light district and being there, my heart broke and just meeting people who were involved in the sex industry there and to see that there was a dark underbelly of sex trafficking and even modern day slavery, we could call it right there in, in this first world country in Europe. And that uh, has stuck with me for 20 years. And that's why I'm really excited about the guest uh, that I have today. Today, I have on the podcast, David Zock. And David, I'm just really excited to have you on today and appreciate you getting up early in the morning. 9 a.m. is early for, for rock and roll, but I'm <laughs> home with family these days. How old are your kids? Jack's 16, Ava's 14, and Stella's 11. So I'm a short order cook and an Uber driver every morning these days. Yeah, is that what it is? So <laughs> I always like to start these podcasts with three publicly available pieces of information about somebody just so they can get to know you and then ask you to share three things that people may not know, little known yeah. piece of information. So here's what I've got for you. The three publicly available pieces of information. First, you are lead singer and founder, I think, along with your brothers of a band called Remedy Drive. And, and I think that from everything I was reading, your brothers are no longer in the band. Except for Philip still produces all our music and tours with me when he wants to. Okay. So there, but so you have three brothers. Yeah. So it's like Hanson or Jackson five, something I mean, like that. that. That's what people said back in the day. It, it never got old. <laughs> <laughs> Just like it never gets old that people think my last name is Heineken. Exactly. So number two, uh, you currently advocate against human trafficking with an organization called the Exodus road. Mm -hmm. And what's most fascinating to me, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, is the third uh, piece of publicly available information. And that is that you have merged these two areas of your life. I've never heard someone talk about the fact that they've merged their band with an organization. I've heard about bands that, you know, support compassion ministry or world vision. You know, they have partnerships. But yeah. I saw an interview where you said, we've merged our band with the Exodus Road. This is like a thing for you. So uh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, I'd love for you to share three things that people may not know about you. Well, you'd know it if you follow me on, on my Instagram, but I, I make cakes for my kids only. And I'm, I got pretty good at R2D2, BBA, I forget what else, uh, the Shaun the Sheep. Uh, so is this, is it the design of the cake or the flavor of the cake? What do you like to do? Is it the, well, I want to get into as they age a little bit, the flavors more, uh, but I design them. I use fondant and, um, make, just make characters. I started just making Thomas the trains when Jack was real little using frosting, but then I started watching YouTube and learning how to do some other, some other. Parts so this wasn't, a, this wasn't a COVID thing. You didn't just start doing this because of COVID. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah. 
I've been doing it, yeah, for 14 years now, 15 oh, years. Amazing. <laughs> All right. So that's, that is a good fact. So what's, un, what's surprising fact number two? About four years ago, I started gardening. We have an acre, so I, I hated seeing that, that space being wasted. So we garden. We had a ton of habaneros last summer that my wife made with like carrot, uh, carrot and habanero salsa, which is our, our hot sauce. Amazing. That's amazing. Carrot yeah. and habanero. My wife is always on the hunt for the right salsa. Sometimes we'll have a dozen jars of salsa in our fridge and she'll actually uh -huh. go buy another one and bring it home and then realize she's already bought that one. She's always yeah. on the hunt. So <laughs> I have to tell her to look for something with carrot. That's, that's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's hot sauce, but like it, they don't have chunks of stuff in it. But yeah, great. but I would, but I would say if you take that and you can make a salsa out of it, that might yeah, be, that might be, that might be a sweet spot. Okay. Number three, a little alone uh, fact number three. I don't want to talk about it at all because it's dangerous <laughs> for probably all my careers, but I love studying and reading about, listening to podcasts about the Nephilim and, and flying saucers and the chariots of, of demigods and stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. You and I are going to have another conversation, another okay, point that yeah. we don't record because I'll just leave it at that. I love that. Yeah. I want to talk about that with you. So, but we have to really get to the topic at hand, which is your story and how you got to the point of merging Remedy Drive with the Exodus Road and your work with human trafficking. Would you start by just kind of telling us kind of the story before you got involved with the Exodus Road, like the story of your band and how you got started in that? Well, like I get bored with this part because I want to get to the other part. And so, so sometimes I say the same things over and over again, because I've talked about it so much, but I forget that a lot of people don't, don't know who we are. We, we Remedy Drive had a couple songs on the radio in like 08 to, to 2010 after being independent for a decade. And so people started finding out about us. And the one was all along that people, people might know. And what's cool is Matt Parker, who founded the Exodus Road. That's one of his favorite songs at the time, but he didn't know me and I didn't know him yet. I think our souls were intertwined by that point in history before we ever met in person. But I was always drawn to invisible children. I was always bothered by the Christian music industry's uh, lack of depth and lack of care for causes other than bands getting paid a lot of money to talk about organizations that feed children from stage, like bands take a ton of money and they're dishonest about it because they don't tell their audience how much they're getting paid for it. And then I kept on being drawn to maybe in another life, I could do something important other than just singing and talking. And as I'm in that stage, I started like reading scriptures that I'd never heard of before, like Amos saying, I'm tired of your songs, like shut mm -hmm. up, singing, shut up with your prayers. Isaiah also, like, I like those guys. I'm wired the way they're wired, I think. Like, shut up with all your prayers. I'm, I'm tired of you doing all this religious stuff. I told you to give me justice for the poor, and yet you're the ones that are running roughshod over them and, and, and looking the other way and spending all your resources and time and effort on singing and talking and praying and talking the talk and calling, talking the talk, walking the walk. So all this is happening with me. We keep on having our hearts broken by Invisible Children, which is an organization that was exposing a, a warlord named Joseph Coney. And thankfully his, his impact day is, has been diminished significantly because of their work and other people's work. And in 2012, and this is the part that I, I say so much that I forget how impactful it is. I'm watching a documentary with my daughter about Coney and about invisible children and how some, how these kids used their camera lenses to expose this injustice. And my daughter's crying and she says, daddy, why not God protect those boys? And we just cried together. She was five years old. And that's when I started writing more specifically about injustice and slavery 
And my marketing director said, David, I'm a whore. I just need you to give me something I can sell. This stuff's not mm -hmm. going to sell. And so thankfully we were able to break free of the Christian music industry in order to write what is now three counter trafficking albums. And what the, the cool part of the story is Matt Parker, who's a fan of the band, has no idea that I'm writing these songs at the time in 2013. No idea that I just left my record label and I'm, I've got four or five songs that I'm in the middle of. And one of, one of them came from what that guy said to me. I'm a soul inside a body. I'm not a commodity. You can commoditize me. You can shrink wrap these important pieces of my soul that I'm putting in the lyric and melody. And you can try to reduce these thoughts to the lowest common denominator, but I'm not a commodity. And in this beautiful, amazing collision of circumstances, our paths uh, intersected. Remedy Drive, the band, and the Exodus Road. And at that intersection, at the end of 2013, here I am with my now one of my best friends, Matt Parker. He hands me a stack of papers, real thick. Their financials. I said, I'm not gonna. I don't want to even take a talk until we look at the financials. Like, how are you spending <laughs> money? And so you got this jaded, cynical guy. You know, arrogant but you know also blind to the way the world is and matt invited me that night to not only sing about what they're doing but he said if you want to come over and see for yourself and even join us in this work you're invited so that's how it all started for me was it scripture that drove you to seeing you know exploited children in the world or were you just kind of out there and you were watching these documentaries and then you know scripture was just kind of smacking you in the face or where it was scripture smacking your face and you thought, oh, this kind of stuff is happening in the world still. I mean, talk about how you began to see this problem. Sadly, um, and I think this is the case for most uh, kids growing up in religious environments, this is so underemphasized. Action is so underemphasized. And maybe it's a reaction to works-based theological systems or the fear of people preaching a social gospel. But any sort of talk of works is like, yeah, 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 that's whatever. Social justice, that's fine. But this is what's really important is talking the talk is what's really important. Uh, and so don't concentrate on walking the walk. And you look at the structure of how we uh, fund our, our, our religion. You know, it's 98, 99% of the tithe money goes to the building projects and salaries for guys like me and, me and you, right? And there is a little left over. And I, I don't know, that was just in me. And I, I felt the unrest in that. And it just started, it just started coming more and more to the surface, the unrest of like, why? And then the, I was furious when, when Bono did the prayer breakfast speech to George W in like 06, 07, because he brought out all these scriptures, like Jeremiah, the prophet claims that the almighty creator said to know me is to take the cause of the oppressed. And yet I thought knowing was like talking the talk. And then I, I started to see that theme throughout where Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me where, where suddenly a personal relationship with Jesus Christ from scripture, the 2100 times mentioned in scripture is taking the cause of oppressed people, elevating the rights and privileges of, of others, rather than what we see in, in mainstream Christianity, elevating my own rights, my rights to gather, my rights to do whatever, you know, that's what seems to be. So all that started to really frustrate me. And I felt lied to by the absence of the emphasis on what is most emphasized in scripture. And that is lay down your life in service to somebody else, practically in a very real way. Uh, and by practically, I say, like, let's put our money where our mouth is. That would be beautiful. And so, so then I realized, well, I'm part of the problem, man. I'm part of this industry. And I, I guess to answer your question right on the nose, I had that written on my heart, just like you do, just like we all do. It's innate in all of us, this desire, this longing to get involved. The creator burned that into my DNA. 
and those 2100 passages that I, that I desperately started looking up because Bono told George W there's 2100 passages. I'm like, where are they? I haven't seen them. They, they, they confirmed in my heart of hearts what I already knew to be true. Yeah. And I, I just really think the church needs to recapture being a word indeed, a both and type of church. I mean, one of the things we've been talking about in our church is that we've slidden as a church away from a lot of the stuff over the years. And so we've been talking about how do we have that and focus, how we talk about being, you know, gospel focused and motivated. So we want to, we want the gospel to drive us to the good deeds that we're prepared in advance for us to do. We don't want to just be in community, but we want to be in the community. We want our discipleship to be relational and missional. So the whole idea is we have got to be engaging. And I think that what happens is the word people, when you talk word indeed, <laughs> they're afraid that the deed is going to take them from away from the word. And sometimes it does. And the deed people get so pissed off that the word people are not doing anything that they eventually end up not spending any time in the word. They're spending so much time, you know, in, it, we just need to hold on to that tension of being both word and deed people. I think more practically, the deed part would require a radical, radical restructuring of the finances of the white evangelical community. It would, I mean, it would be to look like the way that I envision it, we'd have to get rid of that's not the topic of the day. Go, well, well go, we, go, go for it. Spend a couple minutes on that and then we'll what switch if, What if we shut down, what if we shut down half of the buildings? You know what I mean? And use the money from that to, or to, to fund the work or what if, what if, you know, and then everybody got to be rid of some of their, their minute theological uh, differences that keeps them from, from sitting next to somebody that, that, you know, speaks in tongues or doesn't speak in tongues or whatever, whatever it is. Or, or if you didn't want to, then we could make, we could keep the land, turn it into gardens for refugees to farm, turn it into to shelters for, for homeless people, for single moms, for people being uh, pulled out of trafficking, rather than tossing crumbs from the table to organizations that are doing that good work that are, that have to spend so much of their time and energy uh, going after funding. And then, and then when they go to get the funding, so it's like, well, we don't see your doctrine statement of faith on your website. So it seems like you have something to hide here or, or you're, all of that, like, oh, yeah. like, like Keith Green always said, yeah, you listen to Keith Green, that's what I grew up on. He, he, he said, man, why, well, there's so much talk about being afraid that the government's going to like do all this social, social stuff. We shouldn't have to worry about that. It's our job. But my frustration is like, it is our job. We're not doing it at the level we should be by, by it's laughable, our response to, to so many different emergencies, trafficking being one of them. And yet we're, we're doing everything in our power. It seems like our main focus and emphasis, at least publicly, what, what the world looks at and sees is to prevent the government from doing that work that we should have done ourselves. So, you know, it's interesting. I saw an interview recently with Melinda Gates and as she's kind of separating her philanthropic work from Bill, one of the things that she hmm. said is she wants to begin to trust the people whose boots are on the ground to make the decisions for how to spend the money. And I think that that's part of the tension that the white evangelical church, which I'm a part of, <laughs> we need yeah. to hear is that a lot of times we're so worried about being good stewards, which is a good thing. And, yeah. and we're like, Hey, so let's, what, what is your mission? What are you doing? Let's, we want to see it, but we are not the best people to make the decisions. And that's something that I think that's scary um, yeah. to let go of the control. Cause I'm a Monday morning quarterback, man, you know? Oh yeah. And what I love about Matt Parker and Laura Parker from the Exodus Road is I'm like, he gets irritated sometimes with me, especially when I'm in the thick of the work and for many reasons, you know, that, that are obvious now to me, but I'm like, why, 
did we just leave that 15 year old girl in that environment, man? Couldn't we just have made an exception for her and kidnapped her and oh. got her out of this, you know? Yeah. And there's so many good answers that I've learned, but only because I've asked over and over again, but it has made me want to trust other organizations that I support more yeah. and not be something not requiring. So, so let's get into those stories because you just mentioned the 15 year old girl, because I really want to move kind of from the theoretical to the practical, because I think a lot of yeah. people in the States, especially, and most of our listeners to this podcast are in the States. We are clueless to what's happening with human trafficking, with modern day slavery. And so talk a little bit about the work because obviously that's what we got to do. We got to point to the work happening over there. So talk, talk about that and what you do with that or what the organization Access Road does. We're in uh, the Philippines. Now we're in Brazil, other places in Latin America in Thailand in India. And we, we work here in the United States as well. And our teams of nationals in the different locations that we're in nightly and during the day, they go out to find evidence of mainly underage girls and boys being sold for sex against their will. And it's very difficult to prove a sex trafficking legally because of so many reasons. Even what you, when you're opening up talking about Amsterdam and the red light district there, it looks it looks attractive and shiny and sparkly and same with Vegas. And so do a lot of these places too. And even when you're sitting there with a girl that is 15, it's easy to believe that she is doing this out of a voluntary, but if there's fraud, if there's forces, if there's coercion involved in the sale of sex, or if the person being sold as a minor, that's what sex trafficking is. The Exodus road exists to find that evidence and then to leverage the evidence that we have with trusted law enforcement partnerships in all those places, whether it's the United Nations or national human trafficking police or local police to make raids against those organizations that result in not only bringing freedom and contributing to this girl's restart and second chance at life, but also dismantling the criminal networks that are responsible for the misery. And that's the part that's frustrating because I, I really love to focus on that first part. I want her out of there, but we got to do it right so that what we're doing contributes to systemic change in this, in this region so that, yeah. and I've seen it happen in Thailand. I've been going to Thailand for eight years, nine years. It was easy on the street in Thailand for me to go in a back alley or on a red light district or to a taxi driver and say, Hey, I'm looking for a 15 year old girl. But now people are shocked when you say that and traffickers are very careful and the whole network that lifts up and supports that trafficking is now on edge because of this kind of work. So that's interesting. As people are beginning to hear about this more, as it's becoming a little bit more front page news, it's making it harder to actually find. Is that what you're saying? And it's not just because of news. It's not just because of awareness. It is mostly because of the action of the Exodus Road and organizations like the Exodus Road that continue to send a message to criminal networks that what you're doing is not going unnoticed and it's now going to be more dangerous and more expensive and maybe you should get in a different line of work rather than selling humans. So, wow, it's almost like it's, it's getting harder, but that's a good sign. That's a sign that progress is being made. Yeah, but don't be over hopeful. There's more people enslaved today than ever in all of human history. And online sexual exploitation has accelerated in the last few years, obviously, but our teams have pivoted as well. And we have cyber forensic software, we have amazing technology and we gift technology and training to law enforcement agencies. Oh, that's amazing. Training tens of thousands of law enforcement agents in Brazil on how to spot and identify trafficking. 
I was just in Brazil about a month ago because we do a lot of church planning works in some of the favelas and we were in an area where there, so there's a little church building um, in kind of one of the floating favelas there. And there were all these little kids in there memorizing scripture. Hmm. And they were using these computer programs to memorize scripture and singing these songs. And And then outside about 60 feet away were kids the same age who were being trafficked and 60 feet away from the building. Yeah. And just even to be able to see that firsthand, I thought, here's these little kids have this joy in this little, this little tiny safe space. Yeah. And, and, and 60 feet away, someone's innocence is being robbed. It's hard to see and it's hard not to be angry. And I've had to deal with that myself a lot. Like, look, look what we're doing. Look what we're emphasizing. Why can't we scale it? Why can't, why can't this become the emphasis of, of, you know, the gospel that Jesus talked about, he quoted Isaiah, I have good news for poor people, freedom to the captives, liberty to the prisoners, a restoration of dignity to the oppressed and the downtrodden. I and then my, Jesus, and then Jesus quotes that and says, I'm here to do that. And I'm here to proclaim it. And I, I'm mad because I'm like, oh yeah, you said that, but I don't see it. Now, where is it? Where is this, where is this massive group of people that are laying aside their rights and privileges for the rights and privileges of others? And, and it gets compounded sometimes by like this, this girl that said, I was on this, I was with this group and we, these Nigerian Christian women were begging us to help them get, a, get away and they were trafficked and they were being sold in France. And, and I was like, well, what do you guys do? I was like, what do you do? And she's like, well, we gave them Bibles. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm like, okay, man, what? But I felt bad for her too, because that's all she knew to do is to give them Bibles. But man, why can't we just change the way we think about these things? What would it look like to change the way we think about those things? It is dangerous to do the work that we do. It's dangerous physically, but it's dangerous for our souls. And um, I love it that, and I don't, I'm not a theologian. I, I forget chapters and stuff like that, but I, but I, I that's love okay. it. I'm a pastor and I forget them too. <laughs> I love it what Jesus said to Peter, like, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I think that moment was this place, and you would know the, the place that nobody went, like no rabbis ever went to this particular place because it was worshiping this gate to Hades and, and the de- deity Hades or whatever they call him, supposedly was there and, and orgy and, and ritual prostitution was part of the way. And so why would a teacher be there? And when the first time I heard that, I just teared up. I was like, man, why, you know? And yet that's where Jesus went and said, the gates of Hades won't prevail against this. I want it to, to not be so abnormal that, that a married man like myself, my friends, Laura and Matt Parker, that we focus on this. This is a focus of, of the gospel. It's not something in addition to it. Like it's the first public speaking engagement of Jesus Christ quoting that I have good news for poor people because he knew that people that followed in the way that this was part of the way. And he, he emphasized it over and over again. I was in prison and you came and you put your life on the wrist. Well, who's my neighbor, says the religious person. When he's talking about that other time, who's my neighbor? He's, and he tells a story about somebody putting their life at risk. That guy on, on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, he might've been pretending to, and it was dangerous for the guy to get off his mule and sit down, help him, put him on his mule and then pay for his restoration and his restorative care. But Jesus says, this is what it means. Like everything that's written, you can combine it in that right there. And I'm not a theologian, call me heretic, but I think he meant love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbors yourself. That is 
one thing. That's not two things. That's right. Opinion. That's one thing. That's so, one thing. You know, and, and if you even think about the imagery Jesus had with Peter there, the idea of the gates of hell, gates are a defensive implement. <laughs> so he, oh, cool. he's like, he, right? You don't use yeah. a gate to attack. So he's basically saying the gates of hell, we are going to go snatch these people from hell. This defensive thing that hell has, that Hades has, we're snatching them away into the kingdom of light. That's what we're doing. And so to answer your question more clearly, equip and empower our congregations to go out and do this kind of work in every category in justice, mercy, and compassion, and say, this is what it means to follow the way, this. Yeah. And how are you going to this week follow the way? What's that going to look like for you? And I have weeks where I go by and I feel like, ah, I'm not, I'm not doing the work of the kingdom this week. And, and it's not a guilt thing, even though I grew up guilting myself for not reading the Bible enough or whatever, but this is what I was made for. Well, and part of it is Jesus said, count the cost. So only an idiot would build a building without counting the cost. And that's what you're saying earlier. There is a psychological and spiritual toll for doing this. And you have to face that. I was talking to a guy, I can't give details here. But I was talking to a, a guy recently who was offered a job to be on the cyber team that investigates and prosecutes child pornography. And the main question he was wrestling with was the psychological and spiritual toll on him for yeah. doing that. And I told him, I said, we need godly followers of Christ who will count the cost and go do that awful, awful work. Yeah. And he wrestled with it and and he came back and said, I don't know that I can do it. Yeah. And that's, you know, it, it, have you, you mentioned that kind of almost in passing, but how has that been? I, I mean, just as people are looking at doing this type of hard work. It's weird because on one hand, I, I can say everything I'm saying, like you were created for a work like this and you're drawn to it. It is, it is what you're, you're meant to do. It's what you're supposed to do. And I want it for you. I want you to draw near to that sorrow. When I came back from my first trip, it's nice here in Nashville. There's a free therapy organization called Porter's Call that's paid for by all the labels. And so if you're a full-time musician and Al Andrews was my therapist and I told him, I was like, man, I'm afraid I'm less. I've lost myself in this. I'm, I'm losing my way to some degree songs will take me back to a smoky neon room with a dirt floor where a teenage girl in high heels that don't fit in a bikini is being sold for sex and i'm like that sorrow interrupts my time with my family and he said no you're not less he said there was a man who they said was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief mm. and he's like i don't think that I can't imagine a grief that exceeds the grief that you've put yourself in close proximity with. And that was really helpful to me to hear that. And yet at the same time, I don't go to therapy consistently. I should. And I, and every now and then I'll just get interrupted in my thoughts by just that overwhelming sadness. And even you, you mentioned that specific kind of child trafficking, which is different than kids sending each other news, which happens all the time. And so, so even to hear some, some of the so-called Christian men interrogating Judge Jackson and terrible things they're saying to her specifically about this with so much insensitivity to what she has mm. gone through. Oh, yeah. In doing that work and why the penalties are different. Why there needs to be a really harsh penalty for a really harsh, and there needs to be a different way of looking at, I know Christian guys don't like hearing this way, but it does trigger me. It does, it does affect me. 
And, you know, I don't want my day interrupted by that when I, when I'm driving my kids to school and I'm driving home and then suddenly hearing those guys talking to her, I'm like, well, how would they talk to me? And my friends from the police force in Latin America, that those guys work nonstop. They have to see it. You know, they have to watch it to use as evidence. And I never have to watch that, you know, thankfully, but I do have to see kids, my son's age in some of our undercover footage in towels in a hotel room waiting, waiting for what they think is going to be uh, one thing. And then the raid happens, which is awesome, but they're scared, you know, and I see that, I see the defiance in the eyes of a 16 year old girl that's going upstairs. She's going upstairs with a man that is that's three times as heavy as her and, and, and three times as old as her. And, but the sorrow, so I'm kind of not answering. It's, it's both things. The sorrow, the sorrow, I think is such an important ingredient. I don't know why, but it's, it's the way that the creator decided to, to make us new and to redeem all mm -hmm. things to himself somehow is that sorrow factor. But there's sometimes I think that it's breaking because of it. To someone listening to this podcast and they're like, well, I want to do something. I want to step into this darkness and bring light either internationally or domestically, but they're about to get to the end of the podcast and just flip to the next episode. What for them, like right now, like, what could they say? Okay. If I'm serious about this, this is what I can do right now. I have a hard time answering that straightforwardly. So what I do is at, at remedydrive.com slash action, 10 years of doing this, I've gathered together some stories of people in the Remedy Drive community that have done a, a woman ran a 5k in stiletto high heels, got all sorts of press, raised all sorts of money and poured that money into the work of the Exodus road. Some kids made pepper jam and sold it. People bring in Remedy Drive to have a concert and we talk about what we're doing. We share footage of, of undercover footage and communities do like dance nights. They raise money, like, like kids will have a, a, a prom night and raise money for the Exodus road. There's so many things like that that you'll find there. But you have in you something that's unique, your voice, your time, your podcast. Right now, you're using the currency of your podcast to shine a light on slavery and injustice and hopefully nudge people being creative, like one of the writers of the New Testament said, to challenge each other to, to move forward into good works. And I do that with songs and spirit, you know, hymns and spirit songs. I use that to try to exhort and, and encourage. I have that currency. I'm a songwriter. I have the the privilege of being able to have a strange schedule and I can go overseas for a couple of weeks and spy on criminal networks. And you might have that. At a concert, a guy came up to me afterwards. He had broke his back in Afghanistan, getting shot out of a helicopter with the army. And he said, I can't serve in that capacity more. How can I, how can I join you? And he moved his whole family to Thailand for, for an extended period of time. He's now been on more deployments than I have and is responsible for the freedom of so many people. And that might be your capacity, but if it's not, you can do a small fundraiser, you can do a car wash, whatever it is, you're moved for a reason towards this. And if you take that step forward, I have the confidence that the waters will part for you like they did for Moses right before he led a million enslaved people to their freedom. You as a, a musician, as an artist, have found a way to create a connection between your art and social yeah. justice. And you've merged these two things. Probably listening right now are a whole bunch of people who are either creatives like you, or they're not traditional creatives. Maybe they're coders or they are accountants yeah. or they, you know, they have their thing. Do you have any advice for people who are just like, man, I want my passions to be able to intersect with this bigger story? Well, it's, I mean, an artist is, is prophetic and, and, and in a, in a very interesting way. 
whether it's visual art, whether it's photography or videography or music, we're able to believe that something exists and then we take steps to call that thing into existence. And sometimes, most of the time we stumble on it and whatever that is, whatever that beauty is, beauty. And I think it was Victor Hugo that said beauty and idealism are really the same thing. There's, there's an ideal, there is that. And we know, artists know, we know we're not content with the way things are. And we have a little bit of power and a little bit of influence. We have notes that we can put in front of other notes to make some sort of understanding of, of what we want to see the world be. And we're not content with the way the world is. I, I, I mean, even Jimi Hendrix, I just saw this quote my, last night for the first time. This is the coolest thing ever. And he's only 27. He's probably 26 or 25 when he wrote this. The love of power will eventually be overcome by the power of love. That is such a cool thing. That's the most real thing I've ever heard. And so you might be a poet and you can put words together and your words, someone might think about the words you put together for the rest of their life. Worship. If you're a worship leader, I mean, go read Amos 5 and Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 1. Like worship is action. And then we also sing songs like spirit leaving where my trust is without borders. Beautiful line, but I'm not sure I believe most of us when we sing that, I think our trust is actually in borders, you know, that kind of thing. Like use your, use your art, use your creativity and just make it happen. Just line it up, you know, get, go break your heart over and over again with documentaries, which is passing on. We're just passing the baton. And I'm only taking the baton from Dr. King when he said, now is a time for us to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. From Victor Hugo, Le Miserable changed my life. It changed the way I viewed God. You know, when I was a kid and he said to love another person is to see a face of God, I rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, that's not biblical. And then I realized it's, it's, it's the most Christ-like thing ever this day. And yeah. Fontaine, and so just do what you already love doing, but figure out how to do it in the, rec in the direction of freedom and justice and mercy and compassion. Oh, I love it. You were mentioning borders and there's a book uh, by uh, Makoto Fujimura called Culture Care. He's an artist okay. and he basically calls artists border stalkers. And he says that uh, that's the reason that they feel uncomfortable in the church and in the world and that the people in the world and people in the church feel uncomfortable with them because they're always stalking the edges, the wow. borders, and, and that the church needs to be a safe place to allow artists to stalk the borders in a prophetic way so that they can tell us about the world and about injustice and, and make connections that we wouldn't make. And I just, when you were talking about borders, I thought of that, that quote from his book. That's great. And that's, it's not, it's not that I've been canceled over and over again for saying similar things to what I just said to you, right? Just saying something positive about a, a Supreme Court justice potential, you know, or just saying something negative about politicians that don't believe women, that talk terribly about women, that, that set up that as a, as something to look up to, like, like there's, there's not a place. And I think, I think if we had that, if we leaned into that sort of border, there, I don't know what another word would be some sort of like lean into that because there is something happening on the outside and by the outside, I mean, most of our kids too are on that yeah. other side of that border Yeah, and the refusal, the obstinate, arrogant, narcissistic refusal to recognize that as our fault and not their fault is so I mean, it's putting me, I, I don't know which side of that border I'm on most days. Well, that's what a border stalker does. And that is the calling. And the calling is an uncomfortable calling. And that's okay. If you're doing it well, if you're not doing it for your own glory, 
if you're not doing it for your own fame, if you're not doing it just to build a platform and make some money, if you're really going to be a true artist on the borders, calling out sin and injustice and pointing to the righteousness and grace that comes through Christ, it's, it's, it's gut-wrenching work, as is the work that you're doing with human trafficking. It's a hard calling. And yet there's a, a joy in that tension because, yeah. because I know that slavery is temporary. And in the ages to come, they will always look back and songs will continue to be written, I believe, about a few people th throughout all history that said, no, I don't care what your holy book says and justifies this. I don't care what your politics say. I mean, they were saying that, that the abolition, like, like theologians and preachers and stuff were saying that the abolition was going to be the, the beginning of the demise of Christianity in America. So there's always been like religious people like defending slavery or saying, Hey, it's not that big of a deal. Just tell people about Jesus. Like imagine a guy telling me coming out of off of one of these deployments, man, I, I, I think what you're doing is cool. I just wish you would tell these girls about Jesus. Like I don't speak their language, man. And why would I, who wants to tell somebody about Jesus and then leave somebody in their enslavement? That's, that's not yeah. really the Jesus I know. So here's what I want to do. I would love to close out today with one of Remedy Drive songs, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I love and, that. And, and what I'm thinking about is the Sunlight Hunter Face song yeah. because of just kind of all the stuff that we've been talking about. So if you wouldn't mind just setting this up, and here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, don't skip right now because we're closing with a song. Don't be like the person who at the end of church runs out during the last song to get your kids and grab your coffee and jump in your car. And if you're listening to this podcast at double speed, slow it back down to normal speed and listen to the words of the song and let this move your heart. But would you set this up for us? So I was in Thailand a few years back and I'm on top of a building with my friend Sudhir from India. Sudhir rescued his own sister when she was trafficked when they were younger. And he's this amazing, brave man. He's been beaten up. They try to bribe him, traffickers. And I really don't like a situation and it happens a lot to me and to my friends where I'll get locked into a brothel scenario, like whether it's in Latin America on a second floor of like a, an apartment complex or sometimes going up from in a hotel that's mob run in Asia and you get frisked so often it's uncomfortable, it's scary. And Sudhir is talking to me about this. And he said, look at some of the girls in there and they only let them out, but for an hour at night. And some of these girls, they haven't seen the sunlight for days. And I took that thing that he said and the stories of so many women and girls that I've met hundreds over the time doing this. And then I looked at also in the middle of the song, a lot of women in the lineage of Jesus Christ and others mentioned in scripture that held a similar profession. And that's where the song came from. She's resigned, it seems exhausted too. 
American. 